Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everybody. You're here with your old pal, Shipwreck Festival, Jamesy. The old Shipwreck Festival, Brando. Hey, that was a nice time uh, Saturday at the old Shipwreck Festival. A uh, big shout out to to the gang over there for the for putting on the forty second the forty second Great Lakes Shipwreck Festival held here in uh, Livonia, Michigan, Metro Detroit. It's kind of our big scuba show, shipwreck show, and uh, really seems to be getting a little growth to it. So it, I thought it was a fantastic show. It was a really nice show. It's always good to see some of the um, familiar faces that are that are there every year. And old Captain Tracy and his wife Lindsay, who uh, really chair the operation, they do a great job. Yeah, I do the. I hate to say the bulk of the work because there's so many people there that that do so much work, but but they really put their whole heart and soul into it. So, and they're super busy themselves. I'm always amazed that they they do that among doing all the other stuff that they do. And everybody shows up. That's uh, really active in the diving community here in our our little Midwest area. So it's nice. It's super yeah. nice. We get to see some of the big names too, which you know people I look up to, the people that I I've, I've always admired, uh, and we get to talk to them. You know, old a lot of great presentations this year. Super presentation. Rick Mixter got to talk to him a little bit. Yeah, it was great to sit down and chat with with Rick, kind of a local legend here in the in the Great Lakes area. Yeah, I mean, uh, the TV presenter uh, really really advocates for the. Uh, culture of the shipwrecks and divers here in, in Michigan and the Great Lakes. Really uh, we got, super. got to hang out and meet with Jeff Lindsay. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of Jeff from, from way back. Both both Jeff Lindsay and Terry Irvine, both Terry, are, yeah. are Canadian friends, so they're you know they're super friendly. You know they're super polite. You know they like beer, bacon, and... Diving. Bitches. I don't know, beer, <laughs> bacon, and stuff. But... Uh, Really nice to sit and talk with him a bit, learn about Sam Squanches. Uh, I never knew about Sam Squanches. And, uh, <laughs> this is amazing to me. <laughs> well, that's why you know we, we got the help of our f- friends from the, the NOAA National Marine Sanctuary Redound, Stephanie and Cassandra as well. They're also in my book of heroes. Got to meet and chat with the longtime old school Great Lakes shipwreck explorer up, up in the Straits of Mackinac area, Jerry Feltner. That was pretty awesome. Oh, yeah, that was great. Great. She's a little firecracker for being. I'm not going to tell old, her. Yeah, I, the woman does not like her age to be. You know, she was kind enough to let us know. James, you should. You ha- I'm going to edit that out. I'm just going to. She's <laughs> beep, and they'll just hear years old. And then anyway, she's super, really, really sweet lady, and has a lot of historical info to bring to the table. You know what it was like back pre side scan sonar and pre 100 foot visibility back when no zebra mussels were there up in the straits of Mackinac. yeah back when it, it took a hundred dives to like piece together see a mental to, to see to even yeah. see the dive yeah yeah and have a real mental picture when i came home i was started going through some stuff in my old my old hard drives of my photography and video. I did a lot of video really back then in the uh, 2000s, like 2001, 2002, in the 1990s, looking at some of that video. It's all, like she says, you, you piece it together eight feet at a time. Eight feet, right, yeah. Yeah, awesome stuff. Yeah, and uh, a lot of great speakers this year. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we, we made some recordings. We gotta, we're going to put together a little show about the Shipwreck Festival here coming up soon. But in the meantime, Brando, last week you did mention 
the book The Last Dive, which was also about a shipwreck. I think you need to say it like, The Last Dive. The Last Dive. I don't know. Find, find a cool way to say it because it's really ominous, you know, when you say the last dive. You know, these are the things I think about. There's going to be a last time you change your kid's diaper. There's going to be a last time you kiss your wife. There's going to be a last time you dive. You're going to have your last dive. Do you ever think about that, James? And you are a real downer. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have the last episode of the Great Dive Podcast one day, you know. It's just the way things are. We're finite. We have beginnings and ends. It reminds me of Gordon Lightfoot somehow. Hey, kid, you're going to have your last milkshake one day. Hope you know. You enjoy swinging on that swing? You're going to have your last swing one day, kid. I mean, and it's true, but you don't think about that It is true. You are right. Yeah, you don't think about that. Which is good. I mean, you don't need to dwell on that. One day you will have your last dive nice i think you can do better i I know some of the accents you got i know some of the voices you got we're gonna work on it by the time this whole series is over i think we should warn the people this is the beginning of probably a a three four parter something to that effect at least um technically i think this is the beginning of a three four decadeer decadeer it's a long one because uh for for those of you in the know, you know very well that in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a bit of a war that was raging between the Northeast shipwreckers and the North Florida cavers, and that wreck versus caver war, which we've brought up multiple times over the years, uh, is especially highlighted in this book by Bernie Chowdhury, The Last Dive. And after bringing it up last week and kind of wrapping up a lot of the cave stuff, um, a lot of the solo stuff that we'd been talking about bringing this book up, I figured, you know what? It's time. I mean, we've been talking about doing this for years, but this is a big undertaking. And I apologize to the the worldwide listeners of the Great Dive Podcast because this is very Amero-centric. It, it is, but it's not unrelatable to anybody else in the world. I mean, the world has shipwrecks. The world has caves. I mean, the only people we are really leaving out are the those coral pretty fish people, which I think all of the wreckers and all of the cavers have a spot for the pretty fish, don't they? I mean, I do. I, I love the pretty fish. It's just not my, my main focus because I'm here in Michigan. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. We have ugly fish. <laughs> and, I don't, and, I, and I don't know if it's um, – I don't know if this battle exists like it did – here in other places in the world i know there's you know in europe there's plenty of cave divers and wreck divers i don't know if they had the war i think they did that that we had over here they were more polite though we're we're you know crass we're americans but i think it's still there don't you no you're you're curious i have a little spot of tea and could you kindly go fuck yourself (laughs) and that's how they have a war the brits and the french are even more they're probably more crass in the meaning, but they're more elegant in the way it sounds. You know? In the how it, how it, in the delivery, in the delivery. Of yeah, the, you yeah. can tell them to to go, you know, fuck off, and it sounds beautiful. It's like, please say that again, whispered in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and over here at the time, again, it was the uh, birth of the 
internet and uh, the the boards and the forums and the opinions and internet divers. Uh, baby. We didn't have an eloquent way of typing. No, your hatred for how somebody else did a dive. Well, I think people realized I can say anything that comes across the front of my brain, and there's not a goddamn thing anyone can do about it on the other side except scream and bitch more. And that is a great point. But in a way, it's kind of good because it allowed people to not hold back and really say what they felt and thought. So everything, everything was out there for the world to read and see. It was a very hot and tempered time, but now, you know, a couple of decades later, um, it really, you know, was a was a starting point for communication. As as much as it was a verbal fight and a, a keyboard fight, uh, it's it really set the pace for how things in the scuba and the the meshing of the recreational world and the technical world and the cave world and the shipwreck world would all start to melt together a little bit. Yeah, the two different factions were able to kind of square off and give their opinions and experience and tell how they do things. And, of course, both sides thought they were the ones doing it right, and the other side were, you know, clowns. Of course, and that's where uh, the, the arguments began. And it, it's interesting that, you know, this book here gives a, you know, gives a great story of, you know, a, a, you know there it is, you know, a father and son's fatal descent into the ocean's depths but along the way you know the the author bernie chowdhury really goes through learning to scuba dive uh the early days of you know midwest quarry diving uh the 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 draw of the deep water the draw of the artifacts the quest for more knowledge the 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 refinement of finesse with cave diving the the raw ruggedness of of the that you know entering penetrating digging through a shipwreck i mean it it covers it all if you've been diving for a couple days or, or a couple of decades i should say it can get a little tiresome but I could imagine to somebody who, and uh, you know, this is a perfectly written book for somebody who is just knows a little bit about diving, because he goes <laughs> into detail yeah. a lot. Well, yeah, I think Bernie was very smart, and I think he he know he did this purposely was to make it appealing to the non-diver or the. Uh, very green diver, the very new to diving person, and explain a lot of the aspects of technical diving and diving in general, but more so the technical diving, because it's hard to understand why, if you're not a diver and you, you don't know the physics and physiology of diving, you don't understand the need for different gases and the accelerated decompression and the difference between helium and air down at depth and uh, a lot of the physics involved. All you know is, you know, Oh, those people go into water and they've got oxygen on their back and, and you know, the, right. the things like that and flippers and goggles and uh, you don't get the real like what, why are they doing what they do? What are the real hazards of diving deeper and deeper into the oceans and, and caves? So I think he does a good job of that. It's a little. If you're a diver that's been doing diving, you know, if you're a diver who's been doing diving, 
<laughs> you might get a, a little a, perturbed, you know, like well, it gets it's tiresome. Te- it's a little tedious, yeah. Yeah. you know, w- you know, when you're going over explaining nitrogen narcosis again. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if he wrote the last dive specifically for the diving community, you know, right. this would be a, you know, a, a, a 10-page pamphlet. And <laughs> right. And he would have sold like 25 copies. Right, exactly. You know, but instead it, it was a bestseller. Yeah, kind of really opened the world's eyes to uh, kind of what divers do, especially especially technical divers in caves and wrecks going deep. Yeah, I mean, you go to you know Amazon; it's got hundreds and hundreds of reviews. It's, it holds a four and a half star status overall. Tons of great you know reviews on it. Whereas <laughs> you you go looking up you know any dive. Yeah, book that was written by divers for divers. It's like two reviews. Well, and that's kind of. I mean, I look at our podcast, James, and I've said it before. We have a uh, a very small wedge of the pie of podcast listeners in the world because our demographic, our target audience, are divers, right? So diving and divers in the world are a very small segment of the population. And that's the way it goes. All that being said, I hope that all of those readers of The the Last Dive did not get the idea that all divers who are like Chris and Chrissy, uh, who are the main characters, by the way, Chris and Chrissy Rouse, a father-son team of divers, uh, cave, you know, wreck cave divers. Anyway, I hope... hope People did not get the idea. We're all like that. that. That's our personality. Oh yeah, yeah. Hopefully, that is definitely not the image. Yeah. Because those two, um, reading through the book, I mean, if I don't think I've come across two <laughs> characters in any other book, TV show, Looney Tunes cartoon, <laughs> uh, you name it, that get more on your nerves than the Rouses, uh, commonly known as the Bicker Brothers. Yeah, I, and I don't know many people that are like this, at least anymore. Now, I, I remember when, so when this book came out, it was really back when I was very active and traveling around the country and uh, teaching, and most of the people were very extremely level-headed. However, you did run across that odd couple, especially in the very beginning, that were very argumentative, much like, what the fuck are you doing, kind of people. I told you said to do. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I don't know. It, it, they were few and far between, but they were there, so... I don't think that is a great snapshot of the diving community. No, it's a great snapshot of, you know, uh, late 90s America in, in many ways, right? I mean, here you got like a, a young couple, Chris and Sue Rouse, that got pregnant very young, like 17. You know, he became a dad. Yeah. So, you know, here you are, you know, 20 years later, you know, you're, you're still a young man. You are, and and we can do you, you a know, psychological profile on on both Chris and Chrissy. And Sue is like the most level headed out of all of them. Uh, and Chris and Chrissy are, of course, they're men. And uh, there's a lot of 
male, like, uh, you fucked my life over because <laughs> you were born kind of thing. This is so th- when I'm I reading this you. book, <laughs> but I love you, but it's a, it, that's how we are. We're very complex in that way. But that is, that is how I'm reading the book all the time. Like, I'm doing a psychological profile on these two because why all the animosity, your father and son, why all the animosity and the like so quick to get in a fight? Very quick to argue, always just right at each other's throats. And it was about you know, ego a lot, wasn't it, James? A, a lot yeah. about ego, especially as, you know, Chris, you know, left his teenage years and became a man and was trying to become independent on his own. Yeah, yeah even even more so, I think. Yeah, I think he got thrown into adulthood, never really had a chance to sow his wild oats, if you want to say it that way. Uh, there's, uh, there's there's some good stories throughout the book of 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 young Chrissy and his... Uh, <laughs> Chrissy his got a chance. For, yeah. for oats. <laughs> well, he got a chance, and maybe that's part of, you know, dad gets jealous because his kid doesn't have to do what he had to do, which was get thrown into the real world at 17, 18, where Chrissy's right. like living in the basement and going diving. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where, where young Chris, you know, had to like figure out a way to raise a family at 17 years right. old. And young Chrissy is just enjoying the, the labors of dad. So there's a lot of that animosity thrown in along the way. Yeah, so I think we're painting a good picture of like the attitudes of the two main characters in the book, you know, where it comes from. That's... But ironically, they both shared an amazing love of being underwater. And that's kind of where they were at their best, with each other at least. Yeah, until they got back on the boat. Until <laughs> they got back on shore. <laughs> what the fuck were you doing? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing happened. It's not my fault. You're the yeah, one that wouldn't right. grab the plates. You said it was too much. And I think that's where I get this, like, holy moly, if I had to dive with these guys, or if that was even my partner, I'd, I'd be going, come on, man. I don't know. That that was my only, that was like my chief complaint of the book. Oh, yeah, it's not the book. It's like their life, to, yeah. Right. It's, well, it's that I had to sit there. Right and read for three hundred and fifty pages <laughs> about these two sons of bitches that are driving me insane. Well, I think Bernie. I mean, Bernie knew them personally, and and Bernie does a great job of being active in the diving community back in that heyday. You know, so much change was happening, and uh, Bernie knew a lot of the big names and dove with them, and um, he was actually there on the the edge of pushing all the technical diving procedures and and techniques that we've come to adopt today. So it was was really great in that respect, too, to read this book. So if you are a technical diver or diver and you haven't read this book and you've come into diving in the past 10, 15 years even, this is a great book for you. Yes, it's full of all the big names. And that's what I meant by when I said this is going to be very Amerocentric because I'm sure at the same time there are a lot of big names doing some amazing dives uh, exploring the the boundaries of gas and depth and and integrating cave techniques with wreck techniques back in these days in other parts of the world and unfortunately I don't have a, a book entitled you know 
uh, last dippity do, you know, <laughs> uh, the Australian father and son uh, dive into the ocean's depths hey, to, to fall on here. But so if you have a copy of that, anybody uh, or something of the likes, by all means, let us know what it is. And uh, we'll try to get a copy and take a look at that. <laughs> the last dippity do. I want that to be the title of my autobiography, actually. <laughs> you know, you. Brando, you are going to have a last dippity do, honey. How about a little dippity do tonight? <laughs> well, if you're going to dippity do your wife, uh, you better make sure that uh, all those resolutions, New Year's resolutions that she had about you uh, cleaning up your below the waist game are taking place. And uh, Brando, we should get our little uh, help pay for the episode portion of the show out right now uh, and talk about manscaped because people, it's never too late. For your dive buddy to level up his grooming game, Manscaped's new lawnmower 5.0 is every dive buddy's cheat code to look good, feel good, and turn the page on confidence this year. Whether you're going for a trim or that clean-shaven look, this trimmer's got you covered. Trusted by over 10 million men worldwide, old Jamesy, Brando, Terry Irvine and Jeff Lindsay and, and Chris and Chrissy Rouse, too. Even and now, old Bernie Chowdhury would be using this thing, I bet you. And uh, now's the time for uh, all of those dive buddies to get a grip on uh, your grooming with our exclusive offer. That's right, everybody. Go over to manscaped.com. Use the code TGDP for 20% off and free shipping. The ball is dropped, but don't drop the ball on your balls, everybody. Whoa. You know, while we were there at the Shipwreck Festival, this is a little shout-out to Manscaped, if uh, our guys at Manscaped are listening. The Great Dive Podcast has become synonymous in the diving community with Manscaped. And it's like, where's the Manscaped? We, and we did not right. bring a Manscaped giant banner or anything like that for our little booth. but We probably should have for our booth. Yeah. yeah. We probably should have had some samples of uh, the uh, crop preserver ball deodorant and some some crop smoother uh crop soother <laughs> aftershave and had a couple little uh lawnmowers there would have been good i think it's a great idea especially with manscaped you know branching out into the deodorant and other body fragrance fragrance the other uh, elmer fudd the other body fragrances <laughs> <laughs> you ever yeah, so everybody's like, you ever hear of the Great Dive Podcast? You mean the Smooth Ball <laughs> Podcast? Is that the same guys? That's about it. I was like a little taken aback. Like we really have uh, made an impact in the diving community with respect to Manscaped. There you go, everybody. Uh, go get your 20% off of free shipping with the code TGDP at manscaped.com. All right, so Brando, you ready to get into this? I'm ready, James. The Last Dive by Bernie Chowdhury, a father and son's fatal descent into the ocean's depths. Now, Brando, the, the title um, kind of really gives it away, you know, the whole <laughs> suspense of the end of the book. But uh, so does the very first chapter because, I mean, the, the book starts off basically with the, you know, being out on the boat, the seeker, with the lead up to that fateful dive in October of 1992. But it then, you know, goes back in time to, and really when you, when you break this book down, you know, it's, 
you know, they got certified in the late 80s. And, you know, so as much diving as they did do, and they went full tilt into it, they had really only been diving for less than five years. Yeah, and they but they jumped into the uh, the East Coast wrecker scene uh, because of where they learned to dive and, and who they learned to dive with. They uh, jumped into that and the cave diving scene, which were both at their toddler stage, really. You know, I don't want to say infancy, but they're definitely in the kindergarten, four-year-old, you know, stage. Yeah, yeah, they were preteens <laughs> for that. sure, for sure. You know, and and these guys got wrapped up into it, and uh, at a lot of time, there was a lot of you know, you know, divers who would become elite divers, right? You know, known throughout the world, and you know, they were just really itching to become part of that scene. And there was a a, a bit of a race between the between the father and son Bicker brothers along the way. And they got a lot of education. And unfortunately, you know, it, it ends with them making some really, you know, uh, economical decisions instead of intelligent decisions, yeah. which puts them at a point of having a, a, a catastrophic decompression hit. Yeah, I mean, it really highlights a lot of... Uh... A lot of problems that were very common back then with regard to approaching a dive and gas choices and things like that. Actually, it's going to illustrate really how we got to where we are uh, with regard to uh, a lot of the practices you and I subscribe to. And the thing I really enjoyed, like I enjoy in a lot of books, is when they paint the picture of the environment as far as the, the social environment, the, the little factions that were warring, the different, even the little local community bickering, you know, between like the Wahoo and the Seeker were the two big charters going out to the back then, the Mount Everest of shipwrecks. Right, right. I mean, the, the, <laughs> there, there alone was was two. Uh, there was a war going right. and a fight going between those two boats that were, you know, basically on the worldwide scale, you know, uh, docked next to each other. <laughs> they too had a bit of a a, a fight between. Yeah, it was them, just which really did set the page for what you know a microcosm of what the whole scuba yeah. industry would be going through. It's a great little soap opera, really, isn't it? And it kind of describes. The dive community in general, especially back then, I think it's improved a lot. I think there's we get along a lot more, the, no matter what type of diving, and there's a lot more crossing crossing of the uh, streams, if you will, as far as cave divers and wreck divers. So, a lot of cave divers are also wreck divers, and vice versa. So, uh, especially today, yeah, that's what I mean. Because, today, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a foreword at the beginning of the book by Homer Hickman, who was a New York Times bestselling author. He says, I find myself haunted by the Roos family and very impressed and touched by the sensitive manner in which Bernie Chowdhury tells their story. The Last Dive is a fascinating and mesmerizing read, hard to put down, like the perfect storm. It's a deceptively simple tale about a very ordinary people placed in extraordinary situations. And, Brando, in addition to the whole Chris and Chrissy Rouse story, which is the main subject of this book, but it also kind of tells the whole story of Bernie 
Chowdhury's like autobiographical history of his growth in deep wreck diving and technical diving and cave diving a little bit in addition to his near fatal dive as well. Yeah, I think there was a lot of this uh, near fatalness going on back then uh, with regard to deep wreck diving, more so than I think even in the caves. The deep wreckers were, were almost entirely on deep air and decoing on air. Nobody was really, uh, especially back then when this was really going on in the early 90s. So the problem with all that is when we use different gases, higher oxygen contents, we accelerate decompression so we can get out of the water earlier and cleaner. And there was not a lot of that going on. So people were stuck in the water for, you know, three hours, four hours. Now, one thing in a cave to be stuck in there for three or four hours, you don't have to worry about changes in weather for the most part, right? It's not going to really affect your your situation. But when you are out 35 miles in the Atlantic Ocean and you're sitting there doing a deco that's you've got two and a half hours left on it or whatnot, and the weather changes, there's got to be a lot of decision-making going on between the captain, the crew, and the divers. So you may be forced to blow off deco in order to save the boat from being destroyed in the storm. Yeah, it's a totally different world than if you've got a really long, you know, deco and 20 feet of water in a cave, you can just wedge yourself up against the rocks <laughs> and you don't, and just pin yourself yeah. there and you're not going to move. The boat's not going to sink. Uh, uh, the boat's <laughs> the not picnic table sink. is not going to uh, sink. You're not, <laughs> not going to get blown miles and miles and miles out into blue ocean. Or, so, yeah, or just die from that. I mean, even when you're in 20 well, feet of water yeah. and there's 20 foot waves, you're going to have a problem. So those were the decisions that had to be made and and people were blowing off decompression a lot and people were getting bent back in that day i have so many friends that were were bent and like i say you know it became a uh you know like a purple heart or something it you know i had to do a chamber ride and and i never looked at it that way i was always like well what the hell happened but when you paint what was going on in the techniques when you when you illustrate that you show the reason behind everybody getting bent all the time you can't make a three hour or four hour commitment in open ocean where things can change in a minute as far as weather and conditions that's why accelerated decompression became a uh, very big game changer as far as wreck diving yeah and i can remember these stories back in these days you know being at the at the dive shop hearing about them in the great lakes similar tales of of dropping bottles somewhere on a wreck getting held up and delayed and not getting back to the bottles and aborting deco huge decompression obligations and these you know guys that that i remember you know when i was growing up taking these massive wicked sometimes fatal hits as an avid scuba diver instructor and wreck diver for more than 30 years i know the rouses not personally perhaps but as a type of person who often gets involved with our sport In fact, all the divers in the story are familiar to me, although I've actually met only one of them. Since I was among the first divers to get aboard the U-352 and the first to research the full history of the U-85, I can fully understand the lure that the U-869 must have held for the Rouses. A sunken ship? 
no matter what type it is, is filled with mystery. But a sunken German U-boat seems to capture our imagination like none other. How and why did it sink? Who and what was aboard it? Why was it even there? Some divers become obsessed with trying to discover the answers, even to the point of risking their lives. They become engaged, often without fully realizing it, in a deadly competition with other divers, in a game with rules they may never understand. Oh, the competition thing. Ah, right? It's a game. Like, I'm going to get a trophy if I beat you to this, or if I finish my deco first. What are the uh, parameters of this competition? Please explain. See ya, sucker! <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Hey, uh, you ever dive on a U-boat? You ever dive on a submarine, James? I have not been on a sub, no. Okay, my, so my checkout dive, my last dive for certification was on a French submarine in the Mediterranean, but... Très bien. Très bien, si. Or we. Oui. And then I've dove a couple off the East Coast, Nags Head and Ocean City. But I, I guess the thing is, they're old, right? 50 years old plus. And they just look like a, a hunk of rock with a periscope sitting out, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> it, they're all overgrown, at least the ones I've been on. Maybe there's some great ones out there, but they're small. And if you get inside of them with scuba gear, technical diving gear, it's tight and they're falling apart. They're rusting. It's a, it's kind of a death trap. So it's a little scary. Right. And this is where, you know, the, a lot of the arguing came about of like, what's tougher? What's tougher? Cave diving or wreck diving? Cave diving or wreck diving? You're on, it's, it's a hundred foot wreck. Come on. I'm... 1,500 feet inside this cave. What's harder? Yeah. There's a whole lot of uh, laying their wieners out on the table and compar <laughs> comparisons, you know. It's it's a little obnoxious. It really shows the, and I have, you know, it, it's mostly men. <laughs> That's what we do. That is what we do. In, in our defense, though, we do it for the ladies. And this book has got a couple of ladies out on the boat with tough old school, you know, East Coast record gals in this book as well. And he says, like, here, I mean, it does when you read through it, you know, each one of these characters does in many ways represent a whole subculture of the diving community. They're an archetypes. They're all archetypes. I mean, yeah. you, you think about it. Every time a new one's introduced in the description, you're like, wow. I've seen a thousand exactly. of this guy before, too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's it. So, yeah. but uh, And I just want to say your to your comment about the ladies that were out there that are in the book and that are out there right now doing doing the dives. Tip my hat to them. It is, for the most part, still. It's a kind of a man's world in diving. And uh, that's basically because it's heavy equipment and bullshit like that. And not a lot of ladies enjoy lifting heavy shit a lot. Where we do... And the and the ladies and the ladies that we love love it too. So, so shout out to all the all the ladies out there doing doing these kind of dives as well. Any dives. Although I retired from serious wreck diving before technical diving got a foothold in our sport, I too suffered a serious bout of decompression sickness. Oddly enough, mine an undeserved hit if there is such a thing, took place during a placid dive off the island of Guanaja in Honduras. For years, I had skirted the edges of decompression theory and occasionally crossed into uncharted theoretical territory and gotten away with it. And then, during an easy, relatively shallow dive, well within the safety limits of the decompression tables, a, a bubble chose to appear in my spinal cord. 
triggering a desperate series of events that could have left me paralyzed. Fortunately, that didn't happen. But there were consequences, as there always are when the nervous system is compromised. Despite the fact that damaged connective nerve tissues have since rerouted themselves, sometimes, especially when I get tired, the destruction caused by that singular bubble becomes evident to me in subtle but undeniable ways. Mr. Chowdhury knows what I mean. Like him, I still dive, though not so deep nor so long. And like you were saying earlier, this is a lot of the stories that we heard, you know, back in the the late 90s. Uh, Everybody was learning it. And there were a lot of these Ben's hits, a lot of these, quote unquote, undeserved hits that that today we kind of look at like, well, I don't know about undeserved. You're in 180 feet of water on air. You, you, you stay 10 minutes more than you're supposed to. You go right to 10 feet. You get cold and bored. And so you just pop to the surface and you go, I don't know why I got better. You, were for, you forgot the part where you were at the pub till 2 a.m. And, you know, all, all of that stuff. And you're didn't out of wanna, shape and you like to eat bacon yeah, a lot. Didn't want you know? to drink any water because you didn't have you any don't wanna pee, condoms yeah. left for you. And you're, you know, the hookup on <laughs> your dry seat. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, undeserved. It was an undeserved hit. Yeah, nothing is really, it reminds me, you know, I had a student who was a district attorney and uh, we were talking like, I, I said, don't you, don't you ever worry, you know, in your aggressive, in your aggression to, to prosecute someone and, and get a com- conviction, don't you ever worry about putting away someone who's innocent? And he says, well, if they're innocent for that, they're here for a reason. They are guilty of something. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, shit. So, which goes to show nothing's undeserved in this guy's mind. <laughs> the Rouse's story is a tragedy, not because they died, but because they died so unfulfilled. Even had they ultimately brought back an artifact that would have precisely identified the U-boat, this prize would not have satisfied them or brought them the recognition they seemed to crave so desperately. The Rouses, despite their social and personal shortcomings, were great men, fully capable of doing great things. Their fate, however, was to live in a country in an age in which such greatness is often shunned, even seen as antisocial, although I believe they would have thrived in an era of celebrated exploration. It was their unfortunate fate to be stuck in the drab present. The only way they could fulfill their hungry spirit was to become part of a small, select, adventurous, and potentially deadly society. Beto, this is a time when there was a lot of discussion about making dives to this depth illegal. Oh, I I remember. there, there, There was, I mean, this was a time when, you know, diving was very much unregulated, but the you know the, the the federal government was knocking on the door in many ways and it was a fear for a very long time that man if people keep dying we're gonna have to shut this down and there was a small community that were trying to to learn how to do this on the regular without incident so i was in commercial dive school as the rouses were coming up through their technical diving training and although i i was only barely dipping my toe in the damn 
technical diving arena back then. In the commercial dive school, there were a couple of students, especially in, in the classes above me, that had dipped their toe in technical diving. And the instructors at the school, they were divers divers, right? They were hardcore North Sea oil field divers, military deep hard helmet divers. And these guys looked down on the technical diving community. They called them Scooby-Doo's. And I mean, that was the nice names they called them. But they basically thought they had their heads up their ass trying to do these deep dives on scuba and some of the practices they were engaged in. Because even the commercial dive world already knew about the advantages of helium and decompressing on different gas mixes with higher oxygen content to, to accelerate your decompression. They were already aware of that and in practice using it. So they looked at people just trying to do their same dives strictly on air as like something the hard hat, hat divers were doing in the 1800s. So so they looked at right, them as right. yahoos. But it's a different operation of, of you know being able to go out there with a multi-million dollar operation of resources versus now we're entering a day where, you know, just two dudes, you know, want to be able to have enough gear, you know, in their minivan to get them out to, to do the same kind of a dive. So these different worlds were all coming together underwater. The diving community, for all its references to the gentle contemplation of the beauty of the undersea world, is actually a very harsh group from all those who dare to enter it. We demand near perfection in skill and form, including the method and style of our dying. To die while diving is one thing, but to die poorly is to wipe clean all the tributes and laurels we might have gathered during our diving careers. All divers know this, and so it is somewhere in our minds on every dive. The need, if that... If it comes to that, to die cleanly and bravely, if not wisely, we are a band of brothers and sisters who admire the lost cave diver who stubbornly clings to life at the end, breathing down his tanks to the nubs. But we disdain the diver who panics and dies with a tank still half filled with gas. Both divers are just as dead. Just as foolish, but one is allowed to ascend in our version of Valhalla, while others are sent into diving purgatory for all eternity. That is an awesome description of, of yes, the diving community as a whole, an overall synopsis of what's going on in our minds, especially those who, of us who have been in it a long, long time. He describes it perfectly, you know, that person who panicked you like, oh, you schmuck. But that person who died because of some other uh, factors and doesn't panic. But of course, there's always going to be a last second clinging to life. You can't, you can't really escape that. Even I think even the bravest, most heroic people going to motherfuck, you know. <laughs> well, diving the uh, diving great Sheck Exley, that is you know still one of the most revered names, is a guy who died on a dive yeah. that genuinely fucked up and miscalculated gas and tied himself basically to the line so that his body would be found hero hero to the people after major, making some major major mistakes yet we you know have done many stories of you know like we did yeah know, last week about being tied up in a line and, and dying looking for scallops whole different ball game and there is something about the diving community that has 
for nearly four decades now that I've been p- part of it, um, always there's a group of people that are willing to tell somebody else that they don't know <laughs> what they're doing. <laughs> and they're going to die if they keep doing it that way. <laughs> that has not gone away. <laughs> no. And I've, you know, uh, you know, technically, okay, I mean, I was part of scuba. I was very early, but I was part of, the, you know, scuba in the 80s. Diving, you know, you know, really became my life in the 90s. Extremely active in the 2000s. Uh, heavily active with diving and, and learning more and really becoming a, a, an educator in the, the 10s. And now into the, the 20s, and that's five you know, being in scuba for part of five different decadal, you know, generations. Generations, yeah. And I've seen it all (laughs) the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that has not changed that. And maybe that's the lure. I mean, to me, it's a a romantic idea. I don't want to call it heroism because it's not really that you're a hero, but to, to really live life and experience something not a lot of people can experience or do experience and to come back to talk about it, knowing that you're probably going to fuck up one day because we're not perfect. We're humans and very fallible. And um, this may be the the source of our demise, uh, yet we, we continue to do it. And I think that's the lure. I mean, it's like looking at life and saying life is worthless without this this pushing to the edge and the possibility of not coming home. Right. That is living life. Yeah. The show gets pretty deep sometimes. I mean. Readers, even those who are not divers, will love this book. Whether they will fully grasp the character of the Rouses and the other divers that Bernie Chowdhury has so skillfully captured, without knowing firsthand the lure of the depths and the competitiveness of those of us who want to go there, I don't know. All I know for sure is that they, like me, are going to find the Roos boys often in their minds. I can only hope that they will also appreciate the Rouses for whom they wanted to be, even if they didn't quite make it there. Bernie Chowdhury has written a book that seems to explore diving and the deep, cruel sea. In reality, he has written a book about exploring a place even deeper and far crueler, the human psyche, for our often unfulfilled souls. We should thank him for the illumination. Thanks, Bernie. Thanks, Bernie. Yeah. And uh, that's really what we're, you know, uh, about to get into is that that darkness of, of human nature and and how cruel we can be to one another, how cool we were just <laughs> in our own little diving community yeah. and love for breathing underwater, how cruel one person can be to another. And some people do it, you know, over the years for like, fuck you, you're not one of our crew, you know, get out of here. Other people did it over the years for, I understand something that you don't understand. I want you to be safer and I'm doing it safer. So everybody has to do it safer or you're, you're, hurting everybody other people you know just didn't get the same education as somewhere someone else so they don't even know the mistakes that they're making it's a very harsh community oh yeah compared to some others 
some others, many others that are like kind of parallel this as far as uh, activity, as uh, the chances you take and the skill needed and the education needed. Yeah, we're pretty hard on each other for the most part. Well, there's a lot of ego. I mean, a lot of everything you just described is very ego driven, <laughs> uh, isn't it? I mean, from telling other people. Oh, yeah. You're doing it wrong and all this stuff and um, the accomplishments, trying to go a little further, trying to go a little deeper, trying to be the first one to discover a wreck. This is all about look at me. All of it is all about look at me. But you see in some of the people we've highlighted on our, especially like Sheck, I don't think Sheck's ego was anything like this, although I'm sure he had it in him, but he was never driven by I'm doing this so I'm at the top of the heap. I don't think he was. There was a little a bit. T- was a there was a couple. Of, yeah, but I like, think uh, he was very, if it was and, and when it was, it wasn't done loudly and crassly like a lot of people. So maybe that's his saving grace in that respect. Sure. But. I, think, I think part of the biggest problem with Scuba is all of these people get on the same dive boat. Well, and then you have you know a I mean? then you have a book. <laughs> <laughs> then you got a book, Bernie, right? But you know, because you don't get like whatever a a professional hockey player and a, a kid who uh, has only played pond <laughs> yeah. hockey. You know, if the if the if grandma's pond freezes up, we whack around. Yeah. You know, you know, all playing on the same team. But you do on a dive on a dive boat. boat right? yeah. You don't yeah. get a like a fifth degree black belt and a you know a kid at his first day of karate class. <laughs> you know, you know, <laughs> you know, showing up at a tournament. Yeah. You know, uh, out on the same mat. Right? It, it's there's different classes. There's different rankings, but in scuba, you know, for the most part, it's a business. And, you know, especially in these days when it, the lines weren't clearly defined, they were all out on the same boat and, and all competing for the same prizes in many ways. Yeah, that's a great observation, James. You, you never know who's on the boat with you. You might have that, that world-class diver alongside the, the schmuck who thinks he's a world-class diver. Right, and as every you know, budding dive master knows, um, just because they're talking a great game doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Just because they've got old, beat up, ratty equipment doesn't mean it's old, shitty, bad equipment. Uh, just because they've got fancy, high end, new equipment doesn't mean they're they're good because they got all the best. It's a hard it's a hard book to read. Well, you can't judge that book by its cover. You have to get into the water. And even then, sometimes it's difficult to read. You might have perfect trim, which reminds me of all the people who get a picture of themselves in perfect trim and, and looking good and they've got the equipment because they watch the YouTube video and they're able to actually do a back kick or, or a decent frog kicker or, or or whatever. Uh but there's still a whole lot of hidden or unseen elements to making a great diver that are not there. And a lot, to me, one of the greatest elements is that temperament, that discipline of ego, which is difficult to see on the dive boat immediately. It takes a lot of time. And hopefully that's something that we can illuminate like Bernie was trying to do over these next couple of ep- episodes because I think we are going to go deep into the, the, the mind of these different divers as we learn a little bit more starting next week, everybody, about Chris and Chrissy Rouse and uh, and Sue Rouse, mom, and a bunch of these other characters as we go through this book of Bernie Chowdhury's The Last Dive. How about that? 
Yeah, so uh, over the next few episodes, we are going to cover this book, The Last Dive. We're going to talk about this dive from 1992 out on the Seeker uh, and the quest for finding out what was this Untervata boat that they found. And uh, we're going to look a little bit about Bernie's story along the way. We're going to look at these Bicker Brothers, Chris and Chrissy, starting next week and um, ultimately get to this last dive. It's a bit of a tearjerker to a certain degree. It is. It is. Uh, I mean, that, the, I mean the, the, the final chapter, you know, well, before the final chapter, but the, the, the main big climactic chapter is it, it is. It's a tough it's a tough read. Yeah, it's an emotional. It's an emotional reason. And this is something you and I have talked about almost since the the beginning of this podcast is covering the last dive. We've had a few people suggested it, but we had talked about it even while we were talking about starting a podcast. So it's been on the agenda for for years, and we're finally going to tackle it. Yeah, but uh, it's a, it's a big one. It's a big tackle. It is. I mean, uh, this is. Uh, for anybody that's done anything like this, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. So uh, we're finally getting around to it, people. Uh, you've been asking for it. We hope you guys enjoy this. And uh, this is part one. We will talk to you next week. And in the meantime, don't you go changing. <laughs> <laughs> The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando.